Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event. And uh, we are going to uh, interview Edward Frankel, mathematician, author of Love and Math. He came to the Commonwealth Club uh, to be the moderator for Amir Alexander on his book uh, in October, and I immediately, uh, you know, wanted to talk more with him. So now we have even a better chance to ask him more questions about his ideas in this area. And we're going to start, we're going to start with Tina, or we're going to start with Pythagoras? First of all, I would like to say hello. Oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) To our online audience, you know, it's so interesting. Wow. To be with you guys today. Um, I am overwhelmed, to be completely honest. And so, uh, <laughs> give me a second uh, to process this. And now I would like to try, start with something. Let's see if it works, okay? Okay, great. All right. <laughs> All right. That worked. So just to put everybody in a proper groove. <laughs> Everyone's and ready for math answer, now, right? <laughs> also to answer the question why our event is called What's Math Got to Do With It? What's Math Got to Do With It? Exactly. <laughs> and it's, so it's because you tribute, tribute to, uh, to the great Tina Turner. The great Tina Turner and to your choice of, of, of uh, title for your book, Love and Math. So what's math got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? Great, great start. So um, you have made comments in other interviews that you've had and so on um, about the excessive enthusiasm that some mathematicians have uh, for abstract things. Uh, they get all excited about something like the singularity idea. Uh, we won't go into that. But uh, if we go back to Pythagoras, uh, he was one of the first that really got excited about math as as a a, a subject and as a, a way to understand reality. Uh, he got so excited, he said, all is number. All is number. So what do you think he meant by that? Okay, great. Pythagoras. Let's talk about Pythagoras uh, because I think he's very relevant to today's events, you know. Um, first of all, just a couple of things about him. So he lived about 2,500 years ago. We learn his Pythagoras the theorem named after him, Pythagoras theorem. It is a big question whether he was the first one to discover it. Uh, perhaps there were others in other parts of the world who did it uh, at the same time or earlier. And of course, kids in our classrooms discover this theorem uh, every, every year. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, it's something that is a big part of our culture. Um, he, uh, interesting story. So the name, why the name Pythagoras? So the one, one version, mm-hmm. which I heard from a friend of mine who is an archaeologist, is that Pitha, Pitha is referring to Pythia. So it's an oracle mm-hmm. who was a, wo- a woman oracle, mm-hmm. uh, in Delphi, right? And so the father of Pythagoras, who was a jeweler and, and a, a, a commerçant of the year, and he went, traveled to Delphi to, get advice on his business. But when he arrived, the oracle said, why are you asking me about your business? Actually, your wife is pregnant. Yeah. 
He did not know it yet. And he is going to change the world. Mm. He's going to change the world. And so Pita is for Pitya and uh, Agora, Agori is a boy or Agoria is boys. Pythagoras is a Oracle boy. Mm -hmm. So Oracle boy, oftentimes we ascribe to him this sentence, all is number. But I think it is a result of a bad translation. Mm -hmm. I think actually the most naive interpretation of it, uh, which one could say, you know, something like, um, there is nothing but numbers. So everything is can be reduced to a number, right. okay, or something of that nature. I think that's too naive. And in fact, I liked um, another inter interpretation of this, uh, which I found in a book by Kitty Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Kitty Ferguson, was it you interviewed her? I just interviewed her, yes. A couple of in weeks the ago. same event, which I highly recommend, by the way. Mm -hmm. I watched it um, at the recording of it on YouTube. Um, so she wrote a book about Pythagoras, which is fascinating. And the way she um, interprets Pythagoras' maxim is the following, that um, all things known have number. So for without it, nothing could be thought of or known. In other words, we assign numbers to things. We represent things by numbers. But I don't think he was saying that there is an equality, there is an equivalence between yeah. the world, reality, and so on, and numbers. I think everything else he did points to that interpretation, to a, a wider right, interpretation. He wouldn't have done all was, the other things he had done if that's what he meant. He was a mystic and a philosopher, yeah. and he had a secret society of Pythagoreans who were interested in very, you know, wide, very uh, um, broad uh, questions of reality of the universe and so on. He also sp spoke apparently about the soul mm -hmm. of a human. And so I think that there is a lot to learn from him and his ideas. And of course, to me, it is a sort of a straight line in some sense. Well, a kind of more like a meandering line mm -hmm. uh, from Pythagoras to today, to our science, technologies, of course, this path, this journey, uh, went through uh, other great Greeks, Plato and Aristotle and Euclid, mm -hmm. and later on, Renaissance, of course, and then later on, Descartes, Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, science, mm -hmm. technology, and here we are, mm -hmm. sheltered place, <laughs> talking to each other through Zoom, through YouTube, which are governed by algorithms, by numbers, computer yeah. programs, numbers. Yeah. How interesting, huh? Yes. What a, what a journey. What a journey. And so I feel like maybe it's a good time to reflect on um, how did it work out, you know? How did that how did it work out? How did that go, Pythagoras? You know? It's very interesting you mentioned he's a secret society. He had a secret society. He was also uh, politically active. Um, and the secretness was very interesting to me because this secret, what he kept secret was the fact that he was using reason to figure things out. And that yes. he had to keep that secret because reason was really disruptive. This is like the disruptive technology to use reason. Um, and that you'd get in trouble uh, if, if you 
went against the grain of how society was organized in that fundamental way. So I find it interesting that, that what you had to do was hide your scientific research or your, your interest in that kind of thing. Um, so yes. you, we, let's go a little bit to, uh, to your um, part of the love part of your book. Um, to me, that was really, really fascinating was not only your parents who, who seem to have been so supportive in so many very difficult situations, um, but all the different teachers, because you, you, you wrote papers with uh, famous Russian mathematicians when you were 18, 19 years old and so on. And, and then they became famous because they were smuggled out of the Soviet Union, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you, and your, your, your timing was perfect when, when you were asked to come to Harvard you know, it was the same time that Gorbachev was opening up the travel. So uh, do you, is your timing always that good? Because that's, that's awfully lucky. You know, I've been, I've been wondering about that. I've been wondering <laughs> about that. I feel like my life in some ways, you know, like now I'm old enough to mm-hmm. kind of reflect a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and especially nowadays, because, you know, being at home and kind of like, gives a little more time for silence and for introspection and, mm-hmm. and reflection. I'm I'm fascinated by how many things, how many times my life was going in parallel with sort of the world, the universe yeah. at large. But this was one of the things that I was locked down in some sense in the Soviet Union. There was no opportunity whatsoever uh, that I could imagine that I would ever be able to get out. In fact, uh, in Soviet Union, I also faced uh, um, discrimination and adversity that was not allowed to the university because of Jewish background, uh, you know, and so on. Uh, this is, I talked about this in great detail in my book and so on, so I'm right. not going to get much in, into that now, but I'm just saying, how different also 1984, for instance, that yeah. was the year when I was uh, failed at, at the Moscow University on false pretenses. Mm-hmm. And of course, George Orwell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then as soon as I started, but then, like you're right, I was benefited greatly from kindness and um, generosity of some really amazing human beings who took me under their wing and mentored me and guided me into the world of mathematics. So I started doing my research early on and was invited to visit, uh, you know, like you said, little known school in Massachusetts. <laughs> Starts with an H. <laughs> Don't you hate it like how people sometimes say, when I was at Harvard, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just hate that, you know, so I always say, yeah, this is a little school in Massachusetts. So, Usually they were there for know, about a week, though. Yeah. <laughs> when they, the ones so that say it the most often were there for about a week for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There is something about it. Yeah. I, I always find it fascinating. But uh, I was invited just at the time when the the borders were op- opened mm-hmm. by Gorbachev, by Perestroika. So I was allowed to leave. Not a, not a day too soon. Not a, you know, it was just a, a time. So, yes. And so then coming to America and so on. And so... I feel like, you know, it's interesting because, in a way, it was important for me. And now, when I look back to that, I grew up in Russia. You know, the Russia has this—it's very strange. Uh, on the one hand, this incredible tradition of, uh, of knowledge and art and incredible literature, you know, music and so on. But then also that this terror and violence and all the darkness, you know. And so uh, now, seeing and appreciating. Mm, how I carry all of that, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the whole spectrum. But also how I went into mathematics, um, in a, it was not by chance. 
I was pushed almost in so yeah. many ways. You know, I was pushed into it because there was no for one thing there was no there were no other opportunities. But also, I think there was a bigger reason, which I think is is also if we talk about this sort of correlation, how one human story can also tell us something, reveal something about the bigger story of a civilization, of a, of a world, of a, of a, I don't know, of country, civilization, whatever you want to call it. It was a, we talk about, we now shelter in place. It's, mm. you know, for me, my place was a shelter. It was um, a place where I could survive all the cruelty that I experienced in the, in the real world around mm. me. So I had to create this, a safe heaven you know, uh, where everything was pure and perfect and honest, you know, and uh, so, but... Like your own republic, like Plato's Republic. Yes, yes, yes. And so, and I think it was necessary to survive. So, Mm -hmm. okay, I don't want to sound too, you know, uh, pathetic, but, you know, I think I'm not sure I would have survived if I yeah. did not have this place. So it was really essential. And I think in some ways for us as a Western world, in the Western world, my scientific revolution played a kind of a similar role. So we're talking, I'm talking about, you know, Descartes, 16th century, early 16th century, when this idea came through that there are the certain things which all of us share, mm-hmm. which it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor. Mm-hmm. You know, two plus two is four. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain, there are certain things about life, there are certain facts, and there are certain ways that we can talk about them, like you said, with reason. Of course, going back to Pythagoras, so that's where it started. That's the discovery, I think, that the mm-hmm. great discovery that Pythagoras and the other Greeks made. So shelter, it kind of creates this shelter, this idea, this illusion, perhaps, of this safe place, the mm-hmm. safe heaven, where you can then develop more fully than in a more oppressive uh, system. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But eventually you have to come out. <laughs> eventually you have to come out and experience life not in uh, not in terms of some idealized, pure platonic forms, mm-hmm. but life as it is. Life with all of its uh, beauty and cruelty perhaps also mm-hmm. and, um, and sadness, happiness and laughter, all of it. So how do we integrate how do we integrate all that you see you you're, you're reversing the uh, plato's uh, cave analogy you're you're you you found yourself in the light then you want to go back, you have to go back in the cave how do you bring the light back into the cave so that the shadows are clear it's more like coming coming out of the cave i would still uh-huh. say i mean of course all of this this is like um uh, these are all analogies you know it's yeah, yeah. very hard to verbalize but i uh, you know i just feel like Yes, he discovered reason. Why? Because it gives you a sense of safety and control. So you can talk about things and there's logical sequence and so on. There's this idea that something that you have, you have, you have a certain understanding of what's going on. And, and therefore, there is less fear. Mm-hmm. There is less anxiety about what's going to happen to you, you see. Mm-hmm. So it is a great tool by which, but also a great tool for exploration. Because, you know, doing science, my friends, it's also a game. It's kind of like we're playing these games with each other. And look, and we create all these gadgets. Like, look at the technology that we are using today. I mean, what, I'm, what is happening right now is amazing, you know? Like, yeah. I cannot, I'm speechless, honestly, just in terms of, like, how things progress. I'm old enough to remember when, you know, I could type, I had to type an email on a terminal, you know, like, uh, 
in that little school in Massachusetts, in yeah. the beginning one, you know. And now look what we can do. So that's how far we can go. And we're just starting. But, <laughs> and we're just starting. In, yeah. in, this, in this respect. But then what happens is, do we remember still who we are? And when we, we, we benefit from all this greatness and from all this efficiency, you know, mm-hmm. connectivity perhaps and so on. But do we also lose something? Do we also lose something in the process? And, we, and I think that, so maybe, let me show you something. See, yeah. Zoom gives us opportunity to do this multimedia stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Why, why, why not use a little bit of that? So uh, the first, I, uh, first uh, exhibit A I want to, okay. share, I want to share, okay? Um, I, uh, uh, Carl Jung, uh, who is, for me, is sort of like um, guiding me a little. His work has been guiding me, not only in recent crisis, in this coming, current crisis, but just in general. I think he has had seen a lot of things uh, uh, much earlier than others. So I want to show something. Mm-hmm. Um, here. I hope you can see it. Okay. So... This is from his book, uh, which, he, which he wrote just before he died in 1961. It was published mm-hmm. in 1964. It's called Man and His Symbols. Great gains have resulted from the evolution of civilized society, but these gains have been made at the price of enormous losses, whose extent we have scarcely begun to estimate, you see. And, and then primitive man was much more governed by his instincts and rational modern descendants who have learned to control themselves but in the process, we have divided our consciousness from deeper instinctive strata of the psyche. You see, so modern man does not understand how much his rationalism has put him at the mercy. Because all those things, they're still there. So I find a shelter. I find, as a kid, I found a shelter in, in, the, in the pure world of mathematics. So I would immerse myself in that world. But I would still have to come out. I'll have to deal with people and so on. Right. I was not prepared for it, you see. So the reason can take you only so far. So... And he says, a man has freed himself from superstition, or so he believes, but in the process has lost his spiritual values to a positively dangerous degree. And then his moral and spiritual tradition is disintegrated, and he's now paying the price in worldwide disorientation and dissociation. Now, I don't want to sound gloomy or anything, you know? So, mm-hmm. But how close, don't you think, don't you feel, don't you, I just feel how close he is to just describing it could have been written yesterday, you know. Yes. And as scientific understanding has grown, our world has become dehumanized. A man feels himself isolated in the cosmos because he's no longer involved in nature. Nature. And I love this one. Um, thunder is no longer the voice of an angry god. Nor is light, lightning his avenging missile. No river contains a spirit. No tree is the life principle of a man. No snake, the embodiment of wisdom. No yeah. mountain thief, the home of a great demon. No voices now speak to man from stones, plants, and animals. You know, I come out now and I go to, you know, I live close to the Tilden Park. <laughs> now, for the first time, maybe in my life, I start hearing those voices. Yeah. How interesting, how interesting. And, you know, I, uh, I've been, asked, you know, I've spent the last few weeks, honestly, asking for forgiveness, honestly. So, I mean, it might sound a little weird. (laughs) I don't don't want to go all, you know, like new age on on people here. But it's true. I find find myself realizing how much I neglected 
this world out there, these little flowers, these birds, and the birds are now going crazy. I mean, they're just flying around. I've never seen birds, this many birds before. And um, so contact with nature is, if it's gone, then profound emotional energy, says Jung, is gone. And then finally, this, our intellect has created a new world that dominates nature and has populated it with monstrous machines. The latter are so indubitably useful huh, that we cannot see even a possibility of getting rid of them or our subservience to them. Man is bound to follow the adventurous promptings of his scientific and inventive mind, which is great, by the way. So Pythagoras is an oracle boy. So what do boys do? You know, they play. So they create these gadgets and they show it to each other. And they have a competition, challenge each other, which is great. But at the same time, his genius then shows the uncanny tendency to invent things that become more and more dangerous because they represent better and better means for wholesale suicide. Now, he spoke about this when the big danger seemed to be a possible world war three, you know, so yeah. confrontation between Soviet Union and the United States, but I, which I think is a useful analogy, um, useful analogy that the world lived under this sort of um, threat. So how did we? How did they deal with it? And then suddenly it was lifted, and, by, and that was the day when I was allowed to come to the United States. You know, so. Yeah. And I, so this is one thing I wanted to share, and I want to know also your your thoughts on this, George, because well, I, I know I, that you have thought about these issues as well. Yeah, let's. Um... I look at it from a, a slightly more optimistic point of view. And, and that's, uh, I, I get a little optimism just from the fact that people have been willing to cooperate, not 100%, of course, uh, with that we want to prevent a certain number of deaths and we're willing to sacrifice our economy to some extent for that. Now, it, it's only 100 years ago, and certainly in ancient times when you built the pyramids and the Great Wall of China, th there was no concern as to how many lives were going to be sacrificed to build those things. You know, it, it was it was tens of thousands of people who died in the process, at least. Um, and and even building the Brooklyn Bridge 150 years ago and so on, people would die until we spent more time, more money as we got richer. And and one of the things people don't think about, I think, is that as our economy and we get richer, we have more leniency to be protective of other people's lives. Um, so I think we're not totally dehumanized by this process. But I do think like any idea, when it gets started, um, it really overwhelms people. And I think the idea that is overwhelming people right now is materialism. We're so good at it, and for the last 100 years have been so good at it, that, of course, every human being on the planet wants what has been created in Europe and in America and in Japan, and now it's in Asia, everywhere in the last 30 years. It's amazing how much it's been done. Um, and, of course, people, there's a cost to all those things. But I think that that will run its course as soon as people, the vast majority, that is, are out of uh, survival mode of thinking. You know, uh, humanity has been in survival mode of thinking for a long time. You mentioned how math is one of the escapes from that because people, yeah. people in that mode uh, behave cruelly often, etc. Um, no, the, I would say the world, I perceive the world as being cruel to me. So that's why... I found the world of mathematics as a refuge. Yeah. You see. So, in other words, 
I'm not saying that necessarily mathematics causes cruelty. On the contrary, it kind of is perceived as a as a safety net. Right. Because also the idea, the mathematical idea, for instance, this idea of determinism, which I have been pondering, you know, lately uh-huh. for various reasons, like, and I'm really fascinated how uh, this idea, which actually, you know, 200 years ago, this was a prevailing dogma of scientific, of the scientific world, because that reflected the understanding that people had in, in physics of the era. But since then, so many dramatic developments have happened in in physics, specific, mm. specifically quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, Einstein's special relativity, general relativity, which completely turns things upside down. And yet, today, a lot of physicists cling, still cling to this idea. Now, it is possible that some new theories will be developed, which will somehow negate what we understand now. But they speak as if modern physics tells us that the world is deterministic. And in this respect, so I actually, again, I would like to use multimedia, if you don't mind. Uh, no, right ahead. Uh, the, but uh, you have something to yeah, say. No, we have, we have a lot of questions coming in about your math theories, which we're going to get to, uh, just, just to make sure that everybody knows. We'll be getting to, to, to um, his math theories and the questions that you're sending in about this. I'd like to lay a little bit more groundwork first. Uh, but but you can go with this. Uh, the the idea of of, of uh, you know determinism is based yes. upon everything at one point all being known. You know that there that that it, yes. It, and 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 you've written about this and why why there are questions about that. And I I certainly have the same questions. I I'm not concerned. It seems like the framework the framework is uh, a physical framework is deterministic. But as you quote Roger Penrose, the, is the mental world deterministic? And is is our small individual determinations in in our area also deterministic that's a, it seems to be completely open but go ahead right so here's i'm going to show you this quote which show which expresses the sort of state of the art or state mm-hmm. of the science 200 years ago this is from a great mathematician great one of the greatest uh, we use laplace transform you know, all the time in mathematics here's simon laplace 1814 an intellect which would know all forces set in motion and all position of all particles, so to speak, that intellect would have to, would be, if it had enough capacity to analyze data, would be able to predict and see into the future and the past and see it unfold. I'm reparaphrasing. You can read it by yourself before his or her eyes. You see? Mm-hmm. Intellect. So that was the position at the time. But this has been now thoroughly debunked by quantum mechanics. Right. And for the following reason, the equations of motion, to be a little bit theoretical about it, the equations of motion are second-order differential equations. So, for instance, you know, Newton's second law is that force is equal to mass times acceleration. Acceleration mm-hmm. is a derivative of velocity, and velocity is derivative of the position. Mm-hmm. So the equation is second-order derivative uh, equation. Mm-hmm. And therefore, initial condition for initial condition to solve it, it is not enough to know the positions of the particles. You also have to know the velocities of the particles, right. or equivalently what we call momenta, which is basically mass times velocity, right? So in other words, for the Laplace program to work, the, the Laplace program, which I have just explained, right? Um, you have to know, and as the initial condition, you have to know the positions and the velocities of all particles, right? Right. But 
And not only him, Carlo Rovelli is a great guy also and a great popularizer, a great scientist, but also great popularizers, popularizer of physics. In, in fact, in their books, Brian Greene and Carlo Rovelli explain these points better than anyone. And yet, when they talk about this subject of determinism, here's what they say. You and I are both just big collections of particles, and those particles are fully governed by the ironclad laws of physics. Every action you take, every decision you make, every thought that you have is nothing but your particles moving from this configuration to that configuration, and that move is fully governed by mathematics. The feeling of making a choice, the feeling of freedom, the feeling of intentionality, that's real. The causal influence of what you do is certainly real. You are part of the causal chain of how things evolve from here to there if you are involved in that process. But you are not the ultimate author of that process. That process has been set in motion a long time ago and your particles are merely carrying out their quantum mechanical marching orders and you are a vehicle that allows that to happen. You and I are both just big collections of particles. Brian was here just a, a, a month or so ago, uh, or maybe two months now, to, to speak on his new book. And uh, mm -hmm. I'd like to throw a wrench into that as well, an even bigger wrench, um, because I think that... that, that Marching you... orders. I, I'm sorry, George. I yeah, just yeah. want to say, you and I, I mean, how, what kind of audacity and arrogance does one need to, to say, present it as if this is the mainstream view of science? When he himself works, when he works on quantum physics, and he's one of the greatest scientists, mathematicians, physicists of, of today, who does produce great research. When he, during the day, he puts ahead of a physicist, and he knows that Heisenberg uncertainty principle cannot allow you to have both positions and momentum to know them at the same time. Yet, and yet, in the evening, he then gives an interview to a, to a, a popular magazine, and he says this, you and I are both a collection of particles which move according to mathematical laws. There are no such laws which can possibly predict how these collections move, even if you and I were collections of particles. You Is, I mean? Do you find it ironic that, that he uh, grew up with uh, freedom in America and you grew up under an authoritarian thing and he wants authoritarianism and you want freedom? But determinism, but why do people want? So this is what... Yeah, my, why do people want that? Point. Why? Why? And I can, I can answer because I am, I am him. I am, I am Brian Green in that way. I was like that. I wanted to be sure that there is some determinism, that there is some, how to say, that I have control over my life because there are some mathematical equations which describe, because I am just a collection of particles, right. which, by the way, negates all my emotions, my feelings, and so on. Because particles obviously don't feel. So then I don't have to feel pain. I don't have to suffer. Right. You see? So how nice, huh? But also I feel so good because I am a mathematician. So my ego is very pleased that I can go and talk to people who are not familiar with this mathematical sub with this subject, especially because of atrocious state of our education in mathematics, you know, and go and make these pronouncements. Because I know this. I have mastered this. I have understood this. Yeah. How great. You know, I feel like a master of the universe. So at some point, we have to stop this. We are misleading the public. We are misleading people who are, they are not familiar. And Brian Greene is one of the greatest popularizers of science ever. Right. So it's a shame that he would 
promote this kind of ideas. He could say, this is my view, this is my opinion. I think that it is like that. Now, there are people, in, even in quantum physics, there is, there is, there is a work by uh, Gerhard Hoft, who is a very famous physicist, who is trying to restore determinism in quantum mechanics. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. But it, first of all, it's not mainstream. It is not considered as... So, it is your idea, yes, but don't pretend that this is how things are, how we understand it today in science. Uh, If we go back to Heisenberg for just a second with his uncertainty principle, one of the things I found interesting about that is to go back to ancient Greece uh, for, for just a second. The atomic theory is based upon the idea that something should be discrete. If we have a discrete world, I wanted to get into this before, because you talk about group uh, mathematics, that there's groups of integers and that's discrete, and then there are other groups like with Riemann services and so on that are continuums. And so mm. we have both mathematical continuums and we have mathematical discreteness. Um, and I, I find that fascinating as, as, as a key in looking into what our whole life is like, uh, what the universe is like, because I think... Yes. The idea of a continuum is something that we don't think about enough when we think about time and and other things. But uh, to go back to Heisenberg for a second, it seems to me that what we've what what the theory, the atomic theory, which had no evidence for it whatsoever, was just a thought experiment, um, was is that because of all the discreteness, uh, we must have discrete particles that cannot be uh, divisible, and so they must be indestructible. Now, if you think about what would be indestructible in something it would not be able to have any parts. If it had a part, then you could speed it up and it would fall apart, right? So if something has no parts, you 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 can't have internal motion, which is temperature. You can't add it up. So when we take anything, we we look at it. Another big question I have is about observation. When we observe things, we change the universe. That's another part of quantum mechanics in a way. But what do we observe? Yeah. We observe by bouncing small things off of a larger thing, basically. We, we observe each other by bouncing millions and millions of photons off of each other and then seeing the detail. If I could only bounce something as big as myself off of you, I'd get almost no information, mm-hmm. right? And, and so when, when we're looking at these uh, very, very small uh, things that are high, at Planck's constant size, we're, we're using the fundamental particles or something very tiny to bounce off something else that's very tiny. It's not going to give us much information. As a matter of fact, what it does is, as you said, you can either know one or the other. So it seems to me that what happens is that your, your motive, the, the momentum cannot become internalized as temperature. So it's either spin or it's forward momentum. So you, you, you can't know either the location or that. So it kind of tells us exactly. we're getting so close. Nature puts, nature puts limits Right. What we can know, you see. And the point is that they are tiny. So, first of all, this is already a very interesting abstraction to say that something is a sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. To say, for instance, that the human being, so first of all, identify human being with a body. That's the first assumption. Mm-hmm. Second assumption is that the body is just a collection of atoms and each atom is, it's also, it's, it's chopping things into pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So, so kind of like breaking them asunder. But there is some something about the totality also, which is being lost. It is like saying, you know, my steak, you know, it is just a bunch of words in the menu. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of letters. It's a bunch of ink that was put. Right. But first of all, it's your abstraction. It's the way you're describing things. It's the way you're representing things. That's what we talked about earlier. I right. think Pythagoras never said all is number. Right. He's only said all is represented by number. But when you represent something by number, please don't forget that that something was before the, you did this. It's not, the representation is not the same thing as the thing itself. 
one of the, one of the ideas I wanted to talk about uh, a mathematical idea that everybody can get to before we get can understand before we get to the other mathematical ideas is uh, the the one dimensional two dimensional three dimensional that that concept for a second um, but if we had a perfect map of the planet it would have to be identical to the planet itself. That is, it would have to be just as big, contain all the information, and so on and so forth. And so that's not a useful map uh, because it's just a copy of the entire thing and we don't have enough material to make those kind of maps. So a map is a representation, but it loses lots of detail when, it, when it's done. And, and, well, and, and math yes. is, a, is, is a lot of representation. Yeah, well, the map. There is a map. Of, it's a map. There, of, is a, there is a park. I live in Berkeley near Tilden yeah. Park. So I have a map of Tilden Park. I can look at it all day long. It's very different from actually going in there and looking right. at the flowers, listening to birds, talking to the trees over there. Again, I don't want to go all new yeah. age or new. But you know what I mean? Like it's completely different. Or a steak is not the same as what is description in the menu. But even – see, this, this, here's, here's the catch. Even if you identify a body with a collection of particles, nature, in modern understanding of science, mm-hmm. nature puts limitations even for that. You cannot know the momentum and coordinates of those particles at the same time. Right. Therefore, or you know them with some uh, error. And this error gets magnified because obviously most systems are chaotic. They have sensitive dependence on initial conditions, we say. So therefore, your project of describing things all the way into the future collapses within seconds, you see. Even within if you seconds. have the capacity, computer, and so on. It doesn't work. It cannot happen. Now, and I'm not going to get into details. People do incredible con- contortions and to trying to re- revise all theories, introducing hidden variables, non-locality, and all kinds of stuff, just to save determinism. Some physicists do, and I respect that. It's very interesting, you know, to study this. But I would like to ask them a much bigger question: Why are you so wedded to determinism? Why you want it so much? What has it done for you lately, determinism? <laughs> Look around. Look around. You happy now? Shelter in place? You happy? This is. This is, you see, it's a bit of a joke. I'm saying no, that. No, but not, but why are you so wedded to it? Yeah, I have, I have. Why are you so wedded? I think I have an ironic answer to that, and I think it's, it's partially fundamental to what's going on because I think in the fight between religion and science that, that some people engage in, um, they want to make sure that they don't have responsibility for their actions, as is, is, is said by religion, and in order to do that. If you don't have any, if it's determinism, you don't have any responsibility for your decisions, and therefore, and therefore, you you get but wedded to that thing. To, but, yeah, and ironically, also, you get rid of religion, but you 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 still you're exactly. still worried about the ideas of it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we look, we scientists, oh, because we are so educated. Yeah. We are so oh, religious. Come on. I mean, like, <laughs> what are the stories? But at the same, so you reject those ideas, you reject those symbolism, that symbolism, mm-hmm. but then you fall into the trap of the Laplace demon. You know, so right. I, I did not invent this term. You know, Laplace, I just quoted Laplace, so this, he expressed this idea of determinism 200 years ago. You fall, so you want to be the slave of Laplace demon, and you think it's better than be a slave of Almighty God? Why? Right. Why? I have the same question. Why are you misleading people about this? This is what bothers me. I have the same question about dark matter because, you know, nobody sees it. It's 97% of what's out there. And we, we, we can't see it. We can't find it. But we know it's there because of based of certain assumptions that we have. It doesn't seem any different than God to me in, 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 in the sense that you're making an assumption. But there's some mathematics behind it. But there's other explanations for the same phenomenon um, that, that lead to that, that conclusion. But um, you have a lot of fans that want to get to your, your thing. So I want to talk about 
just just to make one thing clear, because it's used all the time, uh, there's zero dimensional points, there's one dimensional line, there's two dimensional spaces, there's when we get to three dimensions. But all those are maps. There, there is no line that's only two dimensional in existence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have right. to so, understand that because in, in, in quantum mechanics and other things, it's taken as if that's the reality, whereas quantum mechanics basically yes. is a map, which is very, very helpful, but it leaves out the details of how it happens. Mm. No, I, look, and I, I may have, if I appear emotional when I talk about this, please do. Is because <laughs> I am actually speaking about myself and about my own hang-ups. Because, you know, I might speak, appear to be talking about Brian Green, yeah. but I am talking about my own misconceptions, about my own fears. You know, it's really, I take it very personal. And I have to say, the last few weeks, you know, mm-hmm. due to very circumstances, <laughs> I had more time on my hands to think about these issues. And I am really uh, struck by how much I imagine it's always easy to say this other people have all these misconceptions how many misconceptions I have and I'm glad you mentioned for example this um, idea about continuous versus discrete yeah so I, I talk about it, those groups because I thought that was fascinating idea in your book yeah I you know I recently came across this uh, amazing ideas um, about the intu- intuitionism in uh, mathematics so there was this Mathematician Brouwer, Dutch mathematician Brouwer, B-R-O-U-W-E-R, who had a totally different view of numbers. He did allow infinite expressions for numbers, but he basically said that at each moment in time, you can only have access to finite string of Mm -hmm. digits. You see? Mm -hmm. Really fascinating. And so, um, whereas in the usual sort of uh, approach to mathematics. We assume that all these infinite strings exist. They have this sort of platonic existence. Mm. And for instance, if you have a number like pi, yes, it has a sort of never-ending um, expansion in decimals. But for pi, we do have algorithms for computing those decimals, right? So in some sense, they are finite. So there is a finite text, there is a finite program, which can produce the thousands of digit, the millions of digit, and n digit for every n. Mm. So that's fine. These are called construct um, um, definable numbers or something. So it kind of like resonates with our modern understanding with computers and so on. The things that are real are things that we can compute in finitely many steps. So this was this guy's idea of Brower's. It's not not mainstream at all. And I used to Edward, the old Edward, who is like you know sheltering in this platonic, pure platonic world. <laughs> Certainly that idea was an anathema to me because I don't want time. I want timeless. Yeah. I want eternity. I want to be in a place where everything is just so blissful and eternal. You see, so I, I see now that I was very sold on this idea of Platonism, for instance, which, again, it's a beautiful idea, but one has to see limitations, I think. One should never completely sell to partic- oneself to a particular narrative. It is a narrative too. Right. And there is another one. There is intu- intuitionism of Brouwer. And Brouwer says, look, you, you can, yes, you can have infinite, but it's potentially infinite. So you can, every moment, you can only have access to five. And it has very interesting consequences. Because, for example, you cannot divide real line, for example, anymore into two parts. 
there was a great article in the Quantum magazine, which I highly recommend, by the way. Quantum magazine is fantastic. But mm -hmm. also, uh, I love uh, this journalist, uh, Natalie Volchover. Who is, mm -hmm. all, of the, all the journalists who write here are really top-notch, but she is really great. And she had an article recently about this, which actually helped me to locate some interesting literature and stuff. And she really did a great job exposing this work. So there's this physicist now in Geneva, Nicholas uh, Gissin, Nicolas Gissin, I guess. Yeah. Who is applying these ideas in physics and is basically saying so? There was an article in Nature magazine in January in which he's saying even classical physics, even before you go to Heisenberg uncertainty and so on, which we talked about earlier, even classical physics is not doesn't have determinism simply because you never you can never have access to the entire infinite string of digits for for any number you see. Right. And so, so for instance, if you cut, for example, you have a number point zero point nine 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 nine, right? What is it? Is it less than one or is it one? So from the point of view of intuitionism, we don't know. It's neither. So by the way, which means that the, the, there is no law of excluded middle. You can have a statement that is not true and it's opposite or its negation is not true. Right. So zero nine 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 nine. if you look at it, you cannot tell because it may well be that it will continue like this, nine 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 nine, and then it will converge to one. But maybe at some point an eight or a seven <laughs> will crop up mm -hmm. and then it's less than one and so there's this there's this who explains this it's like you cut a cake and you get two pieces but some of it gets stuck to the knife that's uh, yeah, yeah. it's one of those numbers who gets stuck <laughs> to the knife and in this respect by the way this this uh, this um this uh, idea i i was listening to this and it reminded me of something i want to show you uh, just kind of like a little Okay. <laughs> lighter, sure. lighter moment. A little lighter moment. Will computers ever be able to work out what nine 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 multiplied by Nine 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 nine. Yo, I'm finished. You don't know what I was gonna say. Nine nine eight nine 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 point eight eight nine. So, so this was of course Sasha Baron. I think you got everybody there on the couch. Sasha Baron Cohen. I love you. He discovered intuitionism as Ali G, you know. It is <laughs> more known, perhaps, to American audience because of his character Borat, but yeah. Ali G, uh, the Ali G show is classic. And uh, nine, nine, nine. And so, but apparently, it, this is serious stuff, you know. So, yeah. so there is a, another way to cheat numbers altogether, uh, which is much more sort of real real world oriented you see so that's to me is one of the illustrations of that tension between continuous and discrete and also like seeing how i for instance edward frankel how i used to take a lot of things for granted for example i was very sold on this idea as i mentioned like platonic mm -hmm. so there are all these numbers they exist in this domain now may, it may be so i don't know i like this the ring of it you know especially and it goes back to play 20 others so obviously it's connected to our conversation but it's not the only way to think about it. It's not the only way, as it turns out. And maybe for some purposes, it is useful. And of course, it is useful because it's a very elegant sort of edifice of mathematics and so on. Mm -hmm. But also, I find these ideas of Brouwer and this knife cutting and like a little uh, chocolate, nine, nine, yeah, nine, yeah. nine, a little, little, 
little little uh, uh, cake is stuck to the knife. I find this appealing too. So we have to kind of like allow all of those narratives in some sense to come in. And as long as they're rigorous mathematically, you know. You mentioned in, an, in another article something that you always are surprised when someone comes up to you after a lecture that you give or something and, you, and they say to you, I believe in reason too. And, and you, you uh, in your book or in the article, I think, said anybody who says I believe in reason is not paying attention. Because you don't believe in reason, you, you know, reason is not there. And that, I, I've said something very similar. You, said, you don't believe in reason, you rely on it. You, 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 you use it uh, as, as a tool, but it's not there to be believed in. Um, and it's, it's, not a, it's not an alternative faith because it's not a faith at all, basically. Yes. And, and, uh, it, can so, run amok. We can, we're, it can run amok. Our rationality, uh, unchecked, um, can run amok. Uh, and... To the point, if we, because we can forget then other things, the other sides. So, in other words, it doesn't have to be this one theory which fit for all. It, it works for this, but for something else, something else will work, you know. And it's so tempting. I am the one to to. I am the first one to admit it. It's so tempting to try to find this theory of everything that uh, you know. Somebody I was reading Gregory Chaitin is uh, a very uh, smart uh, guy, mathematician. I was reading his article the other day, and he's saying, you know, Pythagoras' idea is God is mathematician. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's, an exa- it's a bit of an exaggeration. I think Pythagoras was way more um, sophisticated yeah. than we, you know, make ourselves think this day. And, so and now a new version, new Pythagorism is God is a computer programmer. Right. <laughs> so you see, but what, what, is, what do these two points of view have in common? Because, of course, you, see, you hear a lot of people say, oh, we live in a computer simulation or something. The world is just a program and so on. Why? Because it's familiar. Because we have this gadget lab. Because also, a lot, a lot of us, we, we just look like this all the time. And so, of yeah. course, we, it feels like we are computers. Because that's our lifestyle, right? So, it makes sense. Because it's familiar. So, today, it's familiar this. Therefore, immediate temptation. Oh, so everything is this. It's like an 11-year-old who learned trigonometry. Of course, he's going to go around and say the whole world is trigonometry. Look, there's a circle. Look, it's a triangle. And it's all governed by trigonometry. But it doesn't have to be governed by one thing. Right. You know, so that's the thing. How do I, how do I embody this finally in my life? I'm talking about myself in some sense here. I'm not saying, oh, these uneducated people. And it's not like I used to give these lectures, honestly, you know. And yeah. I would go in front of the audience and I'd be like, I have to explain to these poor people who don't know mathematics, I have to explain. No, in some ways now I see it's a different process, like what's happening right now. That I am learning right now about myself as much as hopefully somebody else is learning about yeah. mathematics, you know. And so I find myself it's very tempting to find a theory which explains everything, be it a mathematical theory or be it something in economics or in politics. And then I have to, and then there is this urge to fight for it and say, this is right and you, and this is wrong and you are wrong. Because then it becomes part of my livelihood, part of my sort of energetic makeup that mm. I, I derive pleasure and euphoria from this, from these arguments and from this. And, and okay, so to some point, up to a point, up to some extent, it's fun. It's interesting to have those arguments and those, you know, discussions. But look how far it can take us. It, it seems to me that we, we are, again, uh, just learning science, and there's a scientific attitude, which should say every time you hear 
a theory which is a better explanation or more reasonable explanation than what you knew before. You say, oh, that's great. I, I, I really like that. And, and you immediately switch the way you think about something. But that is really not how people behave because uh, you've based part of your life on assumptions which you now have to throw away. And it, it, it's, we're used to believing in things like a religious approach and people do it in science. And I'm going to make a, a, a uh, I want to get back to where we are. But before we do that, I'd like to ask a few of the questions that people are asking as we're going along here so that they can get their questions answered. Uh, the first one that came in was from Cecilia Dimino. She said, mm-hmm. I hear Edward say that the math they teach in schools today is outdated. As someone who has access to an understanding of mathematics beyond typical people, what is one advanced math concept he'd like to see being regularly taught in high school classrooms? Oh, yes. Well, uh, for instance, symmetry groups, you know, and which, by the way, is a... symmetry groups. Uh, I have, to, <laughs> I have to plug my book at some point. Yeah, but... <laughs> so this is as good a moment as any. It's the first chapter, first uh, couple of right. chapters of my book. You know, symmetry groups. It is such a beautiful uh, idea. It's so simple. So I actually went at some point to school in New York, uh, Spire Legacy School, and I talked to you know seven year old, eight, eight. I think it was eight year olds and eleven year olds, and I talked about this symmetry groups. And you can explain this with Rubik's Cube. I wrote an article at some point in LA Times about this. So if mm-hmm. somebody's interested, so our time is limited. So, But I, I have some thoughts about this. You can find it on my website. Okay, uh, great. Now I'm playing my Perfect. website. Symmetry groups. And I, I, I'd say that wasn't very clear when I read it. I understood it. And that's, that's, a, that's a good sign that you're, you're, you're making yourself clear. Um, Thank you. So uh, question two from... Uh, uh, my current professors seem to have lost interest in the subject, so I feel forced into self-study, but I don't have any guidance on where to start. As a fourth-year undergrad, any pointers on, on, on their current professors? <laughs> Switch professors, maybe. What, uh... No, but now, of course, now there are amazing books available, popular mm-hmm. books for mathematics. Ten years ago, even, there weren't so many, but in the last ten years, mm-hmm. there have been quite a few I mean, for instance, Stephen Strogatz has a couple of, bo- uh, a few books. Mario Livio has, Mario Livio has a new book coming out about Galileo, but he has, uh, one, one about, uh, equation cannot be solved. I think it's called, there's another one about golden relations. So, and actually, uh, if you just go to Amazon and you look for, you, you take one of those books and then Amazon will give you recommendations and then you follow recommendations. So these algorithms, look, look how useful they can be yeah. for us. For instance, in terms of discovering interesting books or interesting films, um, you, that's what I would suggest. I mean, of course, I'm kind of, um, I, I would, uh, I wouldn't want to plug my book again, you know, but like, okay, so that's not a bad place to start if you, uh, if you want to learn a, a little bit about, and then the way you go, my, my suggestion, and this is how I used to study. You find some concept which you find interesting. You Google it. You find books which are uh, described. For instance, I mentioned symmetry groups. Just Google symmetry groups. Ah, and I should mention also there is this amazing, um, YouTube channel which my guess is probably half of the viewers of this program would know about, at least half, maybe more, called Number File. And so Number File has amazing videos about all kinds of uh, interesting concepts in mathematics. I have done a few, but they, they have hundreds of uh, fascinating, fascinating videos. And these are the entry points. So don't stop at this video, but explore more. Mm. Uh, see what resonates with you, what, what makes you excited. If you get goosebumps, you know, it's like, wow, this is exciting. Follow that. Follow that. Find a book about this. Find more information. That's how you do it. 
it reminds me of the stories in your book before the internet and all that. You were in, in, in Moscow and you had the same excitement. And then whenever you got excited about something, you would go out and find lots and lots of books in the library and so on. Jump, jump fences yes. to get there. It's, uh, it's great, great yes. stories. Great stories. Uh, mm-hmm. Next question is from Krishna Bapana. Can you explain the shift from uh, viewing physical observables as an abelian group of function or random variables to an algebra of operators on a Hilbert space? You want me to repeat mm. that? Well, no, that. but the, okay. we, we, we covered that because we discussed the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Heisenberg uncertainty principle uh, is a direct consequence of the fact that in quantum mechanics, the usual observables like coordinate and momentum are non-commutative. The, if you take the uh, multiply in one order, it's not equal to the product in the opposite order. It's uh-huh. fascinating. This was discovered, by the way, more than 100 years ago now. Or, uh-huh. No, about 100 years ago, 1920s. Which I think, you know, it's, it's something that has become part of our culture. So, for instance, people, uh, I'm continuing a little bit with my pet peeve, you know, that I talked yeah, about yeah. earlier. Heisenberg Consortium people, everybody, it's, everybody, it's part of our culture. It's woven into our culture. People heard about this. But, for instance, there is a very small step from there to understanding why determinism in a Laplacian sense doesn't work. Because you, because you cannot find momentum coordinates, right? So, in other words... If you explore just a little more, so this is an example of how mathematics helps to understand this, that physicists realized that, that there is this strange behavior of uh, physical quantities in the 1920s. And the, world hasn't, and the world of mathematics and science hasn't been the same. Even though people from outside are still being fed the old fairy tales about determinism. Yeah. It's kind of how fascinating. Well, it's funny. I had a speaker in about quantum mechanics saying that there, there was a, a, a philosophical theory, um, logical positivism in Vienna at a certain time that influenced the way uh, the early quantum mechanical theorists uh, thought about it and that that was used as the explanation. Never been a good explanation for quantum mechanics since because and logical positivism has disappeared long ago as a useful function. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's go to, and this is a, a great question to lead into something that we were obviously going to get to. Uh, this is from Matt. What is the similarity or difference between category theory and Langland's program? Uh, and you can talk about Langland's program because uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great, I mean, I know your book is partially about that, yeah. but uh, it, it's an amazing uh, program um, and, and interesting how you got involved in it and pulled into it. Yeah. It is very interesting indeed. So, but it's probably uh, we're, we're, how are we doing on time? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am I am happy to talk all day long. Yes, know, we know. <laughs> I don't want to overload you, George, or your or our audience. So well, we let's or, keep going. And our great people who do the, by the way, uh, amazing work with uh, sound and video. So I yeah. want to acknowledge the, uh, the the people who I uh, have been in touch with, Mark especially. Uh, I warned them in advance that this would go over. Oh, I, I don't want to be. I, I don't feel. No, bad. no, I want to. I want to. As long as they are interested in the conversation, and I think, yes, yes, okay. that's okay. So you said they like the Ali G video, right? So no, we we can keep talking for quite a bit longer. Okay. So, so I'll put some more videos. Then. Anyways, so category so, theory in Langland's program. Um. Yeah, well, category theory is not really. It's something fundamental. So right. category theory. What is a category? So. Um, you see, 20th century or mathematics of the first half of 20th century was based on set theory, which was advanced by uh, your Cantor at the end of 19th century. So that every mathematical object is a set. What is a set is never explained, actually. So it's kind of like a, 
I think, in itself. But uh, intuitively, it's a collection of some objects. So, for instance, the set of uh, people who are watching this program right now. Um, that's a set. And the, mathematics was tailored to that, so that every textbook in mathematics, even today, starts with the words that you want to describe some object like it could be a group or a vector space. So what is it? It is a set which also has such and such properties or such and such structures. However, in the second half of 20th century, uh, there, uh, 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 gradually, my mind starts shifting to category theory. And the reason for that is the following, that the set is something, that, by its very nature, the way it is utilized, is something static. So that the elements of the set, they kind of don't talk to each other. They're kind of separate from each other, distinct. Mm -hmm. But a category is kind of like a set, but in addition, they also talk to each other. Elements talk to each other. So mm -hmm. that in a category, you have objects which are like elements of a set, but you also have what are what are called morphisms or uh, maps between them. So that there are kind of arrows between them. So these little, little objects, they start talking to each other. And it turns out to be incredibly useful, this concept. And one of the people who recognized this early on and also started applying it systematically in mathematics, specifically in algebraic geometry, was a great French mathematician, Alexander Groth, indeed, mm -hmm. who I highly recommend. If you don't know who he is, I highly recommend. I, I'm speaking to the audience. highly recommend that you Google he, his name and find out more about him. He's one of the giants of mathematics of, 20th, of the 20th century. So because of Groth, indeed, but also many others, it has now become, category theory has become like a staple of mathematics, the way set theory was for in the middle of 20th century. So it, it is now penetrated everywhere. So it's everywhere. So you, you cannot really escape in some sense. Now, the Langlands program is much more narrow field in some sense. So it is a very particular set of ideas about some very particular um, subfields of mathematics and about connections between them. Specifically, uh, it started out with the work of Robert Langlands in the late 1960s, so over 50 years ago, connecting some difficult problems in number theory to some uh, topics in some uh, uh, problems in what's called harmonic analysis. Mm -hmm. By the way, harmonic analysis, so number theory is clear, it's like numbers um, and, and equations uh, uh, with, uh, for example, with whole numbers as coefficients, algebraic equations, things like that. But harmonic analysis is also a very interesting subject, which actually has its origins in music because we know that the sound and this brings us back to Pythagoras, because mm -hmm. Pythagoras, of course, also one of his big achievements was that he had, in some sense, the first blueprint for, ma for mathematical theory of music. Yeah. Right? Uh, maybe for another conversation. But um, the sound, the sound, the, the harmony of the spheres, you know, the, this idea that there are certain frequencies, that there are certain harmonious frequencies, the consonant frequencies. Mm -hmm. Of course, then later on, many others, Bach especially, advance this much further in terms of music. But Pythagoras, I guess, gets credit in um, representing sound by frequencies. Mm -hmm. uh, but you cannot represent a whole sound. You represent a sound, general sound, as a composition of notes, right? So if you have a symphony, an orchestra is playing at any moment, there are several notes being played. So there is this idea of breaking the sound into the notes. Now, of course, I'm not saying that it's also very interesting, I think, here to see the analogy. I'm not saying that a symphony is the same as a collection of notes. Mm -hmm. Same way as I think it is wrong to say that a human being is a collection of particles, for instance. Right. But it is one approximation to it. It's one useful approximation which accentuates 
describes certain and helps describe and analyze certain properties. So this is where mathematics is very useful. For instance, mm-hmm. that you are start you describe the sound of a of a symphony as a composition, as a combination of sounds of different instruments, and each of those sounds is a note which, which corresponds to a particular frequency. Mm-hmm. And that's a very useful analysis. It's called harmonic analysis because they are called harmonics, those sounds. So, uh, but as long as you remember that this mathematical formula that you come up with in the end when you decompose is not the same as the process of experiencing that music. Right. Same way as we discussed before, right? It, so, yeah. It's a map. It's a map. It is a map of the territory, but not the territory, okay? So, um, so now, language program, go back to the question, connects harmonic analysis in this sense, but in a much more general setting than music, but more general functions. And number theory. That's how it, where it originated 50 years ago. But since that time, this idea has penetrated into other areas of mathematics, such as geometry, and mm-hmm. even to quantum physics. So my work has been on that, uh, in that whole, in those areas. And so... I think in that respect, going looking at why why I got interested in this, I like the idea of unification. I like this idea of bringing together things which seem to be far apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I just found it fascinating, and I, I worked on this. And I think that mathematics, actually, I want to mention this point, which I think is not <clears throat> appreciated enough outside of the community of mathematicians and even within the community of mathematicians. But mathematics is this universal language. It is this some part of our culture which we all share. Pythagoras' theorem has not changed mm-hmm. since 2,500 years ago, right? Yep. It, and there is no indication that next year or 100 years from now it will be different. And we all, it belongs to all of us. Nobody can take it away from us. So this is something very special and precious, I think. There are even court decisions. The United States Supreme Court is on record saying that nobody can patent the mathematical formula because it represents something about the universe and mm-hmm. therefore it belongs to all of us. So it is even decided at this level, you see, at the level of a judicial system. There's something very special. So mathematics is something that unifies. And especially in this day, when uh, age, when there's so many conflicts and tensions mm-hmm. between us and we so much disagreement, do we even have, sometimes you're thinking, do we even have anything in common? Can we agree on anything? Well, we can agree on the two plus two is four. Or Pythagoras theorem. Mm-hmm. It's true. It is true. It has been true. Not only in Ibrisu before Pythagoras, and it will be true when we after we die. Right. It is something that belongs to all of us, and it is something that we sh- it's precious, and that is worth cherishing and admiring, and enjoying. You know. It reminded me of an aside that I wanted to bring up earlier when you were talking about. Um... The, the, the difficulties of getting through in, in, in uh, the Soviet Union, but then that math was a, a, an opening because other areas were all closed. You all have always had to be a Leninist Marxist. I think one of the effects of the material culture that we were talking about earlier that has not yet run its course um, is that a, a positive one, in my opinion, which is with the pressure on all the different cultures to be economically productive, it's, it's always a mistake to take any part of your group and exclude them and say, those people cannot make a contribution, either women or uh, uh, religious groups or any, any, any of those subgroups in any culture. We have a long history of trying to be more important than each other and therefore doing this. But there seems to be you know, pressure from an economic point of view to just stop doing that so that your economy has all of its resources operating full tilt. 
Um, there's a, um, a couple more short questions, and, and then I want to go into a totally different field about mathematical physics, something that you were interested in. You, as you, you said in your book, you were started in physics, and then you got into math. And there's some interesting ideas we can get into for at least a little while. But uh, one question that was asked from Sheldon was, could you comment on John Conway's uh, passing? Oh, yes. So you just wanted, uh, wanted you to mention that? I would like to acknowledge, yes, a great mathematician, John Conway, mm-hmm. who died uh, about a week ago uh, in Princeton. Uh, and uh, according to the reports, it, the cause was the uh, uh, coronavirus. Coronavirus, yeah. He was, he was 82. Um, great man. I, had a, I, I didn't know him that well, but I did meet him uh, a couple of times. I admired him sort of from a distance. And uh, it's not yeah. exactly my field, but connected, you know. He was very unique in, in uh, his uh, mathematics, but also the way he carried himself, his panache, his, you know, mm-hmm. it was always fun to watch and, and observe and to listen to and to read his books and so on. Yeah, so he'll be missed, uh, definitely. All right, and here's a difficult question before we get to the big question that we're going to go into for the final portion. What is your comment on the current stage situation in the Yang-Mills mass gap problem and which path towards understanding it seems more interesting in your view? This comes from Hossein Hashami. Hmm. Well, very good question. I, uh, unfortunately, I'm not an expert in this subject. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I, I, it's fascinating. And it's a $1 million problem, by the way, uh, from, uh, from the Clay Institute. You know? so, uh, but I, I, I don't know enough to, to make any Make a prediction. Okay. So uh, the big question from Jeff Nelson is, why is math so very good at explaining the physical world? What's the deeper connection, which, of course, is what your book is all about? And I wanted to use that to to, to move into uh, uh, some other big questions just to give context for everybody. Uh, As we've said a couple of times, you know, we've only been doing this for 2,500 years. Now, it seems like a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. But it has not been a straightforward path. And a lot of people don't realize how new some of the concepts are and even that they may not last. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the concept of forces. There's been a lot of work mathematically and otherwise to try to unite the forces. Um, Electromagnetism has been united. Um, There's the nuclear weak, uh, strong force, the nuclear weak force, and then there's gravity. Um, And there's a lot of attempt to, to mathematically unite those. But I found it interesting to sit back and say, why are we using this concept force? Why, why it's part of Newton's ideas, yes, and it's a good way to, to find a pattern in what's going on. But all of the different forces are, uh, from a conceptual point of view, the momentum of certain particles in a certain way affecting the momentum of other particles. So, so there's an underlying concept from a, from a physical, conceptual point of view. One of my analogies is uh, because math is so good at proving things, uh, but I don't think it's it's always the best way to move forward conceptually. Uh, my analogy is pi. You you bring a pi, and everybody uh, talks about pi sometimes. Now, if you, what if you just didn't know the concept of pi, and you worked with cones, and you worked with cylinders, and you worked with circles and spheres. And you kept coming across a relationship that was something like 3.2 and then something like 3.14. And you kept trying to make a better and better approximation of the number, which is how we do it now with computer programs. And you you got a longer and longer number as to what this relationship is. But you never conceptually thought this is the relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. 
right? You didn't know that. You didn't mm -hmm. see that pattern. You were only doing it from a mathematical point of view. And so, to me, you, you can come at it from math. You can come at it from the concepts themselves. So, uh, my point on the forces thing is, we're, we're looking at forces that we see at work, but, but there's the force of water going downstream, for example. There's the force of wind. Um, there's, there's the motion of other particles affecting other particles all the time. And is it, is it better to step back and trying to unite these things and say, these are different subsets of uh, how the motions of particular kinds of particles which behave a certain kind of way are going to affect um, the structure of, of matter in how we perceive it, how we do it. So that was that was one idea I wanted to throw out. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, as you you come at it from a more from a mathematical point of view, and I come at it more from the, the clear conceptual reasoning behind it, the more the Pythagorean uh, straightforward uh, philosophical ideas. And um, it seems to me that there are several other areas like that, just like this idea about the map that we talked about. You know, to be able to distinguish yeah. between a map and the reality, and to say there there are no points that are zero-dimensional in reality, it, it's a very good map to use for all kinds of purposes, but we're not going to get the accurate answer about reality if we use zero dimensions. Well, I feel like, no, I, I'm hearing you. I, I think I'm hearing what you're saying. So yeah. for me, it's been sort of very interesting time now because I am kind of, um, I mentioned this earlier, that I am realizing something now, which, you know, and I've been in this field for so many years. I thought I took so many things for granted somehow. Mm -hmm. I took for granted this platonic idea of mathematics and that this is the right way. Mm -hmm. It was implicit. So maybe I would say sometimes, okay, well, it's not, I'm not uh, completely uh, sure, but actually I was sure, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm seeing that there are other options. There are other possibilities for still mathem rigorous mathematical, not just some kind of, you know, hand waving, as we say, you know, but for intuitionism, for me, is a discovery. And I'm like, why did I not um, think about this before? But of course, I know why. Because it doesn't give quite some as much solace and as much comfort as a shelter. Mm -hmm. You know, from this right. point of view that we talked about earlier. As a platonic idea, idealism in mathematics. You see, maybe now I'm more receptive for various reasons to these ideas. And I see now their power and their... Um, they are interesting, very interesting, original, you know. Mm. And so, but what does it mean to me? It means that maybe it's time has come to to stop for me to reject outright uh, ideas and and to really um, to really know understand that I know nothing. I really, you know, it's, it's such a it's such a hard thing to say even. Not alone to live it. <laughs> yes, Socrates. And, and you know how. The he, only thing I know is that I don't know anything. <laughs> how did that work out for him? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't do that, my Edward. Oh. <laughs> we don't want hemlock in your future. But this is, I think, this is where we find, we are really putting our finger on the on the on the sensitive button mm -hmm. because this is where we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to make any dramatic pronouncements. But I, I'm going to make one. Go ahead. We are in the situation that we are at now, I think, to a large extent, because of that attitude. And it's not just attitude of some people, some other people, uneducated. It's me, Edward. It's my attitude uh -huh. has been that I know something. I know something. I'm sure of it. 
and I'm going to live according to, and I'm going to do things pretending that it is the truth. Right. But is it the truth? Or or can I actually at least acknowledge that I don't know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that if I learn to acknowledge that I don't know, that maybe there is another way to think about it and so on. I, and accept that plurality. Maybe mm-hmm. that's when things can change. But while I'm clinging to my understanding, so-called knowledge, so-called understanding, I'm stuck. Yeah. At least, at and least, so, you're, 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 you can learn all kinds of things, but you're in a cul-de-sac in a way. You're, 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 you're yes, you can't see outside cul-de-sac. the cul-de-sac. Yeah. But also, I like the. I had to throw a little French it, in there. Cult. It's cul-de-sac, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But also, when I said that, cult. It is the cult. I would like to call it the cult of knowing, or yeah. the cult of pretending to know. Mm-hmm. I am a member of this cult. I, I, <laughs> I am not. Uh, I, I'm not pretending otherwise. I am a member, but I would like to. Um, Sound like a dissenter. <laughs> I would like to liberate myself from it. That's to me. This is what this conversation is about. You know, mm-hmm. to me, Pythagoras. I, I actually went last summer. I went to uh, Crete, uh, and I was lucky to. I was guided by various people to mm-hmm. various places where Pythagoras uh, visited and was apparently. Uh, participated in some important rituals and yeah. so on. Um, this was kind of the first um, maybe moment when I started to see certain things, which I didn't see before. You know, it's this is it. I can, I, they, they tried. They all tried very hard. The Pythagoras, I think, they all tried. And they have pushed it. These ideas, Pythagorean ideas, the ideas of knowledge and rationality and reasoning and so on, which are beautiful and mm. powerful ideas, they have pushed, we have pushed, our civilization has pushed it to the limit. Mm-hmm. And I think we cannot push any, any further. We need something different now because this is what I, I feel we're learning now. The, yes, there are various issues we have to deal with, political and so on, but it also beneath a lot of this is something more philosophical, um, you know, this perception of humanity, who we are, what what are we doing, you know, what is life about? And it's not helpful when we say that we are collections of particles. It is not helpful. No. It's over, I think. I would like to say, please, it's over. It doesn't work. This is where we look, how far we, we can get with this, but not more, not anymore. Not we anymore. know that that doesn't work. It doesn't uh, work it, anymore. If you it want to keep talking about it, yeah. If you want to keep talking years. about it, that's fine, yeah. Let's allow the possibility that it yeah. is not so. Yeah. That I am not a collection of particles. Let us allow this possibility. Don't tell me with such, uh, you have to say, what is the right word? With such confidence, yeah. we are just collection of particles. Don't say just, say maybe we are collection of particles. This I accept, it's right. fine. Yes, right. okay, let's discuss. But don't tell me, yes, this is the last word of science. It's a dogma which will stay forever. No, it will not be because it is like religion. It's not going to work. And it's based on assumptions that we know from science actually are not which accurate. Which is wrong, which are yeah. wrong. According to contemporary science, this is patently wrong and false. But, we, but humanity has got thousands of years of experience of having theories where, where there's contradictions in the theories, and people ignore those for thousands of years as they keep talking. So right. um, one of the so analogies... let's allow other points of view. Let's allow other points of view. Yeah. yeah. It, we, should, we should be... I think what you're saying is we should have at least enough... Uh, knowledge about ourselves to know we've only got a very small point of view and you've you've used an analogy which i really like and i i used it before too myself 
uh, before I heard you use it. So I thought it was very funny. You do it in math and I do it in, in philosophy. But it's a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. There's a big jigsaw puzzle. And, and where I get some of my optimism from is the puzzle of the universe is made up of decillions of, of, of pieces. And the decillions of pieces are all moving all the time with respect to each other. So even if you got a little piece of it clear, uh, it, it would soon be someplace else and so on and so forth. So it seems like an impossible task. But there's another puzzle. And the, that puzzle is a map, like a map. And then to me, that puzzle is all the things that don't change, all of the principles, like the law of gravity and so on and so on. We might not have the law of gravity exactly right, but we know that there's something like that that doesn't change in the way that matter operates. Um, and that, that puzzle is like a picture of a Swiss town on, the, on, a, on a little lake with mountains, and the reflection in the lake is perfectly clear, so that some of it looks like an illusion, and some of it looks like this, but there's this little town and a little forest, and the forest is all of nature, and the town is human humanity, and, and, and the rest of it is the metaphysics of the whole universe. And because it, there's this reflection creating an illusion, you can have people like Shankara saying it's all an illusion because he's getting that piece of the puzzle uh, clear, but he's not getting the whole puzzle clear, in my opinion. And we, the nice thing is we could get just the part about us and our personalities accurate in the puzzle. What are the patterns in our personalities? We could get that piece done, even if we can't figure out what's an illusion and what's not because the pieces are too much alike and the other. But that's only about a 10,000-piece puzzle. It's a difficult puzzle, no question. And we might have, you know, uh, 100 of those pieces clear right now. But, if we, but, but that's a puzzle that we can do. We can look for the things. And to me, that's a good way of looking at Plato's eternal ideas theory, Pythagoras's uh, all his number. There is something about this continuum of change which doesn't change. And that's what we should pay attention to. Those are the principles we should pay attention to. Because that's going to make the rest of the picture look as clear as we can get it. We'll never know the details. Um, and, and, and that's where I think, again, your statement about, about this, you know, what, what Brian uh, Green says. And I, I met Brian uh, back in Utah in 2003. Absolutely delightful. Uh, oh, man, no, very, very nice he's guy. He's a genius. I mean, I love yeah, him. Uh, because his books, are the, and his books are the best source to learn why these ideas have been debunked, actually. Yeah. So that's, it makes it doubly ironic. But to talk about the puzzle you talked about, yeah. you just mentioned, let me do a little experiment. Okay. But for that, it is important that I, yes. <laughs> you see what's going on here? And uh, it's not yet. <laughs> I'm not sure that we're a little bit out of sync, us. of course. Right. I don't know if the universe will allow us to do this. It shows. And it's a, it's a live stream. So the live stream is about 30 seconds behind uh, what we're on. doing. So this is called the Droste. <laughs> the scientific term for it is the Droste effect. <laughs> you see? So now I'm going to stop this because otherwise the universe might actually explode. <laughs> you see, so we, never, we don't know. But this is this is the source of a lot of confusion, I think. Yes. The source of a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, what we call in my mind self-referential loop. Uh-huh. You see? And so um, when you start seeing reflections and you rec start believing that these reflections are not you. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. So, but, and there are infinitely many of them. This goes as far <laughs> as you want. 
and then you start uh, fighting them, those phantoms, those mirror images of yourself. You start fighting them. And the more angry you look at them, the more angry they look back at you. <laughs> so I I always wanted to do this. It's the first time. It was, was great. <laughs> it, it's just so, the, the narcissism, uh, you know, uh, myth from ancient Greece uh, in the yeah. 21st century. Perfect example. This is narcissism amplified. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> This, is, this little, is what our math has little, done for us. <laughs> about so obviously. <laughs> anyway, so you see, it's very interesting. And so that's where, by the way, um, I wanted to mention this too, that limitations, we talk about limitations of knowledge. The greatest ones, the greatest ones, they knew it and they tried to convey it to us. So, uh, for example, I would like to show you, uh, since it's been a while since I used multimedia, you know, I would like to show something. Um, uh, it's a quote. Do you see it? Yep. We have Einstein up. Yeah. So the most beautiful thing we can experience is a mysterious. So this is the guy who was the grandmaster of logic, of rationalism, right? Who can be more, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's uh, reason. He has done amazing things. And he was one who never forgot what is a source. The source is a mysterious, not a theory that I came up yesterday and I'm so proud of that I understood it. So now I have to uh, uh, convince everybody else that this is the right theory, which applies in every circumstance. He to whom the emotion is stranger. Emotion. How uh, does, how does um, a collection of particles experience emotions, I wonder? Yeah. But that's just uh, in brackets. He to whom the emotion is stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stra- stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed, you see. So that's what he said. And um, that's one thing. But also, uh, the other person I would like to uh, mention here is Kurt Gyodo. Mm-hmm. Kurt Gyodo, the great logician, who proved the uh, uh, incompleteness theorems showing limitations of mathematics, mathematical reasoning, mm-hmm. that a formal system, formal mathematical systems, in other words, um, a, a rule for producing mathematical statements using just the law, loose, ro- rules of logic will never be able to produce all true statements. Mm-hmm. I'm simplifying a little bit. Yeah. Okay? Very closely connected is the work of Alan Turing, which, of course, is the father of modern computing, this idea that algorithms can only go so far mm-hmm. that, yes, they can do a lot of things, but for instance, there is no algorithm which can answer every question about algorithms. For right. Instance. Self-referential loop. Our reasoning has this weird capacity that we inevitably going to speak, start talking about ourselves. And that's where things start happening in a very interesting way. So, is it a good, is it a bug or a feature? I would say it's a feature. And it's very important to learn this feature to understand the, uh, the, the meaning of it, you see. Mathematics is so versatile that it even can point to its own limitations. I think we can all learn from this. A subject yeah, we should... which is the most abstract, right? This yeah. is the kingdom of abstraction. This is the kingdom of logic and reason and rationality. And yet, when you get to that point, when you get to that level of rigor, the first thing you learn, or one of the first things you learn, is that 
it can only take you so far. And, and it, as you said, we should learn from that. That is, we should learn our own limitations, even though we keep pressing ahead and trying to learn more and everything. That doesn't, I'm not, and I'm sure you're not interested at all in stopping this process. Just oh, making no, it, course. just making it's it more rational. It's and a beautiful thing. Let's 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 be more rational about this and and realize that that we may have, you know, that whatever patterns we've seen, we might come up with better patterns. We might be, give up with a better, more uh, reasonable way of looking at it instead of being stuck in wherever we are. And and it, it's a it's a, a very good full circle, um, you know, from the beginning to end with Einstein like that because that's exactly when when Einstein or Newton or Leonardo or Archimedes or Euclid said I'm a Pythagorean they didn't say I I believe everything Pythagoras uh, thinks what they say is I'm I'm looking at life in a comprehensive way in which reason is extremely useful um, but that's not all there is. And yet, and yet, there is room for imagination. Right. Yet, there is room for mystery, for the mystery, for the mysterious. Yeah. And our job as scientists, he says, I, what I read in this between the lines is that our job as scientists is not to expunge this mystery, yeah. but to cherish it, to appreciate it, as we do, as we go along, and we make more and more discoveries, and we put them to use in our society and so on. Also, to appreciate. Uh, it, science would be a lot safe in a lot safer hands if we did that too, because people wouldn't be so. They'd be happy for all the technology Kubris, that's produced, the right but they're not be afraid that Kubris. we're going to make make everybody into Spock. You know, that's and, and yes, you know, nobody wants that. Basic humility. I think. Yeah, we can all we can all use a little bit. You it's know, my it's my opinion that that with more reason people would would have much more enjoyable personalities for themselves, and and that of course would be for others as well. So we have to come to an end now. That was absolutely great. Can I can I do something at the end? Sure. I want to end with something. Yeah. Uh, which I really uh, I think is resonating with what we are discussing. And um, yes, this. Ah, great. With a, with a shout out to yeah, my, we can see it to my dear friend Nora Esti, who introduced me to e comments years ago. It's one of my favorite poems. And I'm going to, and uh, as a bonus, you are going to get a reading with the Russian accent. Since feeling is first, who pays any attention to the syntax of things, will never call it kiss you. Holy to be a fool when spring is in the world. My blood approves, and kisses are a better fate than wisdom. Lady, I swear by all flowers. Don't cry. The best gesture of my brain is less than your eyelids flutter, which says we are for each other. Then laugh, leaning back in my arms. For life is not a paragraph. And death, I think, is no parenthesis. E.E. E. Cummings. That's a great way to end, Edward. Excellent. Thank you very much. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support.